How do you explain the matter of submission to a feminist? (laughs) Well, I don't think a feminist would be any more challenging than anyone else who has a strong concept, who is or is not open. I wouldn't try to convince a feminist But if she has an open mind, then I would just share with her what this understanding is without any attempt to try to convince her and not to convey any feeling of judging her or labeling her or being threatened by her. If you want to know, I would tell you, if someone their mind is closed, then I don't try to tell them anything. The Lord said, do not give what's holy to dogs or cast your pearls before swine. If someone is just on the verge of just counterattacking, then we just don't engage in that. Okay. How do you go on when there is an older sister of stature who, being offended and is hurt, spreading death in the church life? And how do you shepherd younger sisters who are witnessing this? Well, this this does happen. Okay, I would, if you're aware of this, I'm speaking in principle, then surely you need to bring this to the overseers, to the elders. They need to know this kind of situation. And I believe they could guide you as to whether or not it would be beneficial to contact her about this. They may realize she's untouchable. But this is where the prayer ministry comes in. We are not passive when we are aware of death attacking in any way. If there's death in the prayer meeting, certain prayers should swallow it up and release life. But when you are praying concerning this, you're not praying against the sister. You're praying against the enemy behind the scene. But this should not be tolerated. Then with the younger sisters, to to witness this, then again, you don't want to malign this older sister or speak disrespectfully, but you have to be honest that what you are getting is death. And we should always close ourselves to death, no matter from whom it's coming. Okay. Okay. This is why it's question and response, you will see here. 
I have a difficult situation with my husband after 30 years of being in the church life. He is so cold, and I don't trust, cannot be open to sisters or anyone to pray for us. What can I do? Well, if you have a genuine vital companion, and this I know from some experience, you can pray together regarding your husband without uncovering him. It is say that your your husband has a need and you pray positively for the Lord be mercy on him, the Lord to come to him, the Lord to shepherd him. I believe you can pray like two or three gathered in the Lord's name in Matthew 18. And they were praying, the context indicates, about this person that wouldn't listen to one brother, wouldn't listen to a few brothers, wouldn't listen to the church, had to be treated like he's an unbeliever. Yet, this vital group was still burdened to pray concerning this. How can we carry out the vital groups according to Brother Lee's burden? I can't say much about this. I have some experience. It's not full. But the first thing, one thing I noticed when I returned to Anaheim in 1994, I saw in the church news this column under a heading Vital Groups. There might have been 20 or 25, and I wondered, not critically, just wondered, are these really vital groups or are they just group meetings? Then I noticed after time the heading changed to group meetings or home meetings. In order for a group to be vital, those participating need to be vital. Using the term doesn't make it different from what it is. So Brother Lee's definition of being vital is to be living and active in our spirit. Okay? Living and active. So those that are concerned either to have such a group or for a group to become vital then first, we should be before the Lord to ask him to make real to us being vital. I don't want to just use a term. I want to be living and active in my spirit. Some dear saints can be living, but they're not active. Part of being active is going to be Caring for people, burden for people, a heart for people, 
praying for people, contacting people. So the vital groups, on the one hand, are for the increase through the gospel and for shepherding and recovering others. Okay, you touched on the matter of healing, which is very helpful. But is there any way that we may hinder the Lord from healing us? Oh, definitely. And uh, my response here might be rather surprising. The self doesn't want to be healed. Because the self realizes when I've been hurt, I, am not, I now have power. And so, in having fellowship with brothers, I don't do this exactly anymore. I did this 20 years ago. I would tell them, I can save you 10 years in your married life. 20, I can't. 10, I can. How can I do that? Well, here is a list of really stupid things. If you do any one of them, your wife will be offended and hurt. And she will remember that. And she will remember the next one and the next one. And when you are having an argument, she will string them all together. And then she will say, you always do that. And how did I know about these list of stupid things is because I did them all. Okay. So with the Lord in John 5, remember this man by the pool? He asked him, do you want to get well? So the self can really be perverse in this way. We can pity ourselves. We can love ourselves. We can nurture ourselves. So we need to be willing And when we're willing, we will open to the Lord and ask him to pour in the oil and wine. And so it's the self that really kills our enjoyment, that hinders our experience. So we need to let go of this weapon that it's gone. You never bring it up again. It's not part of your being any longer. And let's say, one step further, if you find yourself resisting, then you have a backup prayer. Lord, be merciful to me and enable me to be willing. Many things we need to do, we're not able to do. We're not able to will. We're not lost. We can tell the Lord, Lord, I I need your supply, even to be willing to do this. And he will really take care of you in a precious way. Within the church life, I understand there's the practical separation between
I'm not sure, this roles and function in life of brothers and sisters. However, I need more help on how this applies in certain ways in practice within the church life. Practically, for example, the practice of sisters not sitting in the front row, not participating uh, in breaking the bread or baptizing new believers. Is this a matter of God's government within the church or sisters' uh, possibility you know, doing the same? Okay. You just consider... Uh, Let's say we have, um, hey, when uh, you had the Chinese-speaking conference in a few weeks, and a few thousand saints are together and have the Lord's table, and two sisters would come and break bread, would you have peace about this? That I was in one meeting, a training meeting, decades ago, 4,000 saints. One sister went up to break the bread. And Brother Lee saw, saw her. He went up and told her to go back to her seat. It's just your inner senses, it's out of order. Whether or not a woman can baptize other women if there are no brothers around, I don't know, personally, I wouldn't be bothered by it. But this is, you know, part of the order. And let me give another example. Again, this is somewhat subjective. This is from my own view. Uh, I'm uncomfortable when sisters are overly active in directing a meeting. And some habitually do this. So let's just consider the matter of calling hymns. I would never say the sisters cannot call hymns. They should not call hymns. What ground do we have for this? But my observation is approximately 50% of the time the hymns are off. I've been in a meeting in my district here twice within several weeks. A sister called the first hymn, 132, at the Lord's table meeting. You don't begin the Lord's table with that. And so we should approach this organically by the sense of the body, the feeling of the body, rather than rules. This requires much more fellowship but I, I can't go further on this. Practical question with regard to head covering. Is it only for the church meetings and ministry meetings? Or should it include personal times of prayer and also gathering times with sisters that are not church meetings? Well, I don't know much about this. I'm not a sister. I don't wear a head covering. 
I believe, again, this is, there's no rule. There's no legality. You just go by the life in peace. Don't make it a law for yourself. I do remember an elderly, very mature sister in the Elden Hall years, the wife of Samuel, of Brother Samuel, and her practice was to always wear it when she went to the Lord. But that's not something she taught or exemplified. It's just something she did. So just let the Lord live in you and you just live him out and don't be under any regulation, especially self-made regulations. If you have the sense to put it on, put it on. If it doesn't occur to you, you're praying with two or three sisters, oh no, I didn't cover my head. Don't let the enemy harass you. Tell him to go jump in the lake. You know which lake I mean, right? How do we deal with the need or desire to be appreciated and recognized? Okay, there are two levels here. Someone who has this need or this desire, there's not only the self. There is a human need. Something has happened and just the human life of that person to cause her to feel she's nothing, she's diminished, she's not appreciated. And she's not wanting to be glorified. She just would like some respect and recognition for her as a person, as a woman, as a sister. And so instead of our trying to figure out what percentage is self, what percentage is need, you just come to the Lord and he's aware of both and he can deal with both. If, if the self is involved, then the cross has to be applied. But if there's a need here and the need for you to be recovered, to have a proper sense about your worth before God, the shepherd of your soul will care for you in a most wonderful way. Okay. Okay, regarding our children who grow up in the church life. I have a burden for my son who is senior in college to consecrate his life to the Lord two years full-time training. He wants to marry a sister before coming to the training. They met in the campus, both loved the Lord and in the church life. I don't know what is the Lord's leading. Okay. My response will be quite direct. But again, it's a response. But it will be direct. Uh, we parents have to know the limit set upon us by God concerning the extent to which we can go to direct the spiritual and human life of our sons and daughters. Our responsibility is to raise them humanly, to develop their character, 
to raise them under the law so they're brought to the Lord for real salvation, to provide for their human needs, to arrange for their education, to bring them to the Lord. But you're overstepping if you want to insert yourself with your view into what your son should do. This is something on the divine side is determined by God the Father and his will. On the human side, it's determined by two young adults. So we have, we know of situations where a brother is consecrated or a sister is consecrated to the training and a, a relationship that's proper starts to develop then they both feel, let's put this on hold. They have the grace to do it. Others have a very different leading. And they get married first. They take a year or so to establish their marriage. And they come as a married couple. We have a number like this. And I realize, I'm adding this point, in some cultures more than others, there's an emphasis on honoring your parents. Well, this is a command from God. We have to do this our whole life. But some have the cultural notion that to honor your parents means that no matter what your age is, you do whatever they want. And if you don't do whatever they want, they will accuse you of not honoring them. Well, this is in violation of God's arrangement. And so, yes, it's good you have the burden that your son would do this. But now I'm going one step further. Even in our having burdens for this, our self can be involved. Yes, we want this to be for the Lord, but we want our daughter, our son to be in the training. But if the opposite thing happens and they go into another direction, that affects us in a certain way. And so we should be open to the Lord, be honest with him about our feeling, and then honor him as having the supreme authority over this and respecting the decision of the brother and sister involved and be wise not to say and do things that could have a long-term effect on your relationship with them. I think that qualifies as a response. Huh? What is the best way to fellowship with a sister who is terminally ill? Well, when you ask for the best, I, I don't know what's best. I assume the sister knows she's terminally ill. And depending on the depth of your experience and your capacity, I would suggest something like this. Why 
this has happened to you while you're in this situation? We don't know. The only one who knows is God, and he's quiet, isn't he? But he's given you time to end your journey in victory, peace, and glory. And this should be in our heart towards someone like this. That one brother that was terminally ill, a brother who had caused many offenses to others, someone who had been hurt by him and had left the recovery, learned that this brother was dying. And he wrote him a very endearing letter, just asking him, Brother, is there anything you want to clear up You know, before the end comes? So we don't delve into someone. We don't probe into their life. But one definition of an overcomer is exemplified by Paul in 2 Timothy at the end. It is that an overcomer is a believer who finishes the course marked out by God. And so Peter finished much earlier than John. It's not the length. It's finishing the course. And this is what would be in my heart to pray for and even to pray with this one. And you sense any fear, any issues with God, then you bring an atmosphere of cherishing where this one can be honest with the Lord and allow the Lord to touch them, care for them, so that the end in peace, in glory, and in victory. I know the principles of head covering and the Bible even shows the need of bearing it. But why do I feel that I'm falling into a ritual? Why do I have such a feeling, and how can I overcome it? Um, well, I, I don't know why you have the feeling. And I would approach it this way. Don't wear a head covering or do anything like that because this appears to be the culture among more spiritual sisters in the church or it's a practice. You should just go by the sense you have from the Lord. And if you feel you're doing this um, automatically as a legality, or as a ritual. Okay, this is just a thought now. I don't know how you'll feel about this. I'm not sure how I'll feel about it once I say it. 
then you might want to experiment a little bit. To say, Lord, I don't know whether this is a ritual or not. So I'm not going to wear it. I'm not going to wear it. And just consider in the Lord. Lord, how do you feel about it? Again, the Lord is the shepherd of your soul. He knows why you have this feeling. You open to him. He'll give you life and peace to wear it or not wear it. When to wear it and when not. What's the difference between being hurt and being offended? Okay. It is the self that's offended. Those that have been broken and have been, Brother Lee uses this expression, placed on the cross, the cro- uh, based on the altar mentioned in Genesis 35, the altar for the God of the house of God, for the building, and experience Christ as a burnt offering. The self is touched in such a way, nothing can offend her. Nothing. Brother Lee himself testified, nothing can offend me. All the factors of being offended have been touched. So it's the self that's offended. There may, the thing may be wrong, this and that, but it's the self. So you may not be hurt at all. I, I have known some sisters who've been offended where there was no offense. It was imaginary. This, this person is walking across the campus and, and didn't say hi to me. The person didn't even know you were there. And so there's no offense, but you got offended. And I was talking with a brother bearing responsibility with us at Living Stream, and he talked about this sister, this dear sister, got herself offended with every brother. But the wound is different. This means there's something as there's pain in your soul. You know, words, they're like a sharp sword. They pierce you, they hurt you, they damage you. And even if you're not offended, the hurt is there. And one effect of this is It kills your joy. The soul is the organ of enjoyment. Now your soul is suffering, so you cannot have joy. And so you may be offended without being wounded. Someone could be wounded without being offended. And some can be wounded and offended at the same time. Again, the Lord knows. I emphasize he's the shepherd of our soul. He's in our spirit as the pneumatic Christ overseeing us. He knows our situation moment by moment. He knows how to care for us. Just ask him. Can you share more on how to have a hidden life with the Lord? Okay. 
And this involves both times with the Lord one-on-one and your daily living. And so we have to learn that first we want to have experiences of the Lord through direct contact with him. Then the Lord, being our teacher, will train us if or when or what we've experienced can ever be shared. Brother Nee has a message on this. And he says, when you experience something, you enjoy something, immediately you just talk about it. You just have the sense of emptiness. Like Hezekiah the king, who showed the representatives from Babylon, look at all the treasures that I have. And then the prophet said, what did you do? You'll lose all of it. So Paul, in 2 Corinthians, he mentioned a certain man in Christ 12 years ago. Whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know. He was carried away to the third heaven. He was carried away in paradise. He hid that experience within him for 12 years. But some of us, if we had a remarkable experience like that, we'd be on the phone, we would be texting, we would be prophesying about it. And that just makes us more shallow. And I learned, I'm still learning, I learned from the word, I learned from the ministry, and I learned especially from my mistakes. I learned very little from my rare successes. But once you made a certain mistake, whoa, that, that just stays with you for a long time. And then one day, I was taking an early morning walk in Majeska Park when I lived in that area. And I had a conversation with the Lord. I said, Lord, I need to learn how to be with you person to person. To begin with, you can see me, but I can't see you. I need you, Lord, to teach me how to be with you. This is after I had been in the recovery for 30 years. I just told him, I I don't want to do anything formal, religious. I want to have real contact with you. So please train me. And he went about that. And another prayer I had while walking, I can share now. See, I'm bringing it out. That mentioned before that I can recall anyway. I just said, Lord, you see me, you understand me. Just care for me according to what you see and what you know. I don't know where I am. I don't know what I need. But you do. Okay?
What is the best ways for sisters to study the word? Okay? It's no different from the ways with the brothers. Okay? No different. And so I suggest these possibilities. One is read the Bible through again and again and again at whatever pace works for you in your actual situation. If you're a pneumatic mom with three children under the age of seven, your schedule is going to be highly unpredictable. And so don't impose on yourself a law, but seek the Lord. What should my pace be? Then I would also recommend seeking the Lord about being in a particular book. I've done this many, many times, again, following Brother Lee's pattern. And, and, and every time the Lord just gave me a sense, Ron, you need personally, this is not for you to give messages, it's not for you to prophesy. This is for you. You just pray, read through it. Spend some time in it. Then I would add this, that we need the ministry to open the word. So we read the word, we recognize we need the ministry, the ministry opens, then we return to the word. And so for the long run, let's say a 10, 10 or 20 year program, I recommend to saints who ask. One way to pursue the ministry is to go book by book. Another way is to go topic by topic. So as, again, the Lord knows where you are and what you need, uh, I don't think he will lead you to spend six months immersed in Ecclesiastes. But he might lead you to spend some time in Song of Songs. And um, I think this will happen when we, we fly tonight to Manila. We'll be there resting and then serving on the weekend. Then fly to Malaysia, resting, serving on the weekend. And I'll have a couple of meetings with the trainees. I think I'm going to walk them through Song of Songs in a certain way. And I would suggest to them that from now on, for the rest of your life, you read Song of Songs once a month. But that's just the personal side of my own love story. The faith in and of the Lord the faith is of the Lord and not ourselves. However, can the Lord say to us that we have an evil heart of unbelief? Well, he can say to this, or indicate this, if you have an evil heart of unbelief. But if you are afraid that you have an evil heart of unbelief, that's a strong indication you do not have an evil heart of unbelief. Because if you had an evil heart of unbelief, 
you wouldn't have that sense. You wouldn't have that questioning of yourself. Again, uh, I'm not exalting. I'm just honoring. The sisters have a certain advantage over brothers. Just like, you know, it's common to say, in, you're in the car, husband's driving, he doesn't know where he's going. She said, stop and ask for directions. No, I know where I'm going. The sisters can just admit, I don't know. I don't know about this. Oh, for a brother. Oh, a trained brother, an educated brother to say, I don't know. I don't know. And so you don't trust yourselves as much as brothers do. That's why the first thing you do is pray. Prayer is the last thing brothers do until they're dealt with. It's the first thing you do. And so the sister who wrote this, I have the some confidence to say, you don't have such a heart, but you may also want to pray a preemptive prayer. Lord, grant me the mercy never to have an evil heart of unbelief. Give me the spirit of Caleb. Okay? And he will. I'm going to get through all of these. (laughs) How do we know when we are ready to receive a harsh dealing from the Lord? And how do we receive them without becoming bitter? Is it all the Lord's mercy? I am a 20-something sister. Okay. Um, You don't know. You don't need to know. Consider Jacob. Okay. He's going back home. He hears his brother is coming with him. With what? 200 men. So he's terrified. So then he has this arrangement. I will divide my family in half, put my favorites behind. And then that night, the Lord as an angel comes and wrestles with him all night. Quite a match, because he was so strong. He had to expose to Jacob, his strength. And then he touched the core of his strength. But the Lord didn't say, oh, Jacob, uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a wrestling match and I'm going to touch you. You don't need to know. You don't need to know. He will know when it happens. And when it happens, you will realize it. And so I didn't know, but late at night, July 30th, 1981, the Lord came to me in a certain way that he never did before or later. And then he and I knew this was him. I had a concept of what it is to be touched in this way concept is completely off and I just worship him and adore him and praise him for this 
So when he comes and does this, the grace and the mercy come with it. I was not able to, according to the Lord's arrangement, really release the intrinsic burden concerning God's government. But I have learned from First Peter and from the ministry that when God's governmental hand is on us and we humble ourselves, the grace is there immediately. They're not separated. For his supply is always there. And that is what keeps us from being bitter. We're bitter, not about this kind of dealing, but about things that happen that are contrary to our assumptions, our expectations, our self. So that's not, you could say, a direct dealing. It may be indirect but if you sense this is you're capable of being bitter, this is a mercy. Then just settle it right now. You twenty something. You settle it right now with one prayer. To say, Lord, please give me this mercy that whatever discipline I'm under of the Holy Spirit, whatever dealings, I would never be bitter against you. Okay, that's it. This is a preemptive prayer. And the Lord will take care of you. So a 20-something sister asked such a question. And so, sister, whoever you are, I'm not going to try to guess. I don't want you to reveal yourself. If you're asking this kind of question now, By the time you are 34, you will be well into the fourth stage of the experience of life. Okay? Does a divorced woman or sister should pray to have a better marriage again? Yes, yes, amen. Okay? Uh, and I'm glad you said better, not just any. You know what it's like when it has that kind of ending. So th- this is a human longing. You were married once, this is what happened. You're still a woman, you still have the longing. You still have the need. You don't have to be ashamed of that. That's what's in your heart. And the one, when we pray in the prayer meeting, prayers of God's administration, his government, prayers of warfare, we need to know his will and respond to his will. But according to Philippians 4, in our situation, Paul says, don't be anxious. Make all your requests known. Don't hold them back. Lord, I want to be married again. I want to have a new beginning. But then I add this. Please follow the principles God has ordained regarding remarriage. We have known many, many 
situations of a brother whose wife abandoned him, a sister whose husband left her. They got a divorce that they didn't want. But they realized in order to remarry, they need the ground to remarry. And that is your spouse passed away or has joined himself or herself to another, in a sense, married to someone else. So then you can do it. And there's just so many cases where the sister or the brother waited on the Lord for for the ground to be opened. And in every case, there was tremendous blessing. The Lord brought a mate. The match was just perfect. And they're in a realm like they never thought possible. But some do not follow this. They violate this. I know some situations, personally, I had to be faithful in the fellowship to say, you do not have the ground to remarry. But human beings are free. They're not robots. They did it. But there'll be no blessing. But surely, back to the question. Yes, pray whenever it comes up in your heart. Talk to the Lord about it. If you've already done it 280 times, then do it, do it 281 times. This is your living before him. I had a deep and sweet relationship with the Lord before I met my husband. But since my marriage and having a family, my heart for the Lord has not been the same. It has been almost 20 years, and I don't feel I can find the Lord or touch him or love him in the same way no matter how much I try. Why? Because you're at a different stage. The Lord doesn't want to bring you back to that particular stage of your love relationship with him. And this is seen in Song of Songs, chapter 2, where the lover of the Lord has, has this supreme enjoyment, the house of wine, so much love, enjoyment of the Lord, mutual love. Then he comes, leaping and skipping, saying, my love, come away, come away. She can't move. She doesn't move because she's there examining, introspecting her situation, taking that as their criterion. That's it. I've already been at the peak Well, all that you've passed through in your married life with your children, you may not be aware of it, but much ground has been gained in you, I believe. And the Lord doesn't want to bring you back 
to spiritual pre-adolescence. He wants to bring you on. And so eventually, the Lord comes in a way she never knew him before, leaping and skipping. And he tells her the winter's over, the birds are singing, the flowers are blossoming. And then a few verses later, oh, my love, you're in the cleft of the rock. How beautiful is your countenance, how pleasant is your voice. So eventually, she got there. Then in chapter 3, she's a pillar. Then in chapter 5, the Lord comes again to call her further. The response is delayed, but eventually she's brought on. So sister, ask the Lord to release you from being governed and directed by the past. And believe me, the Lord wants to bring you into a relationship with him more wonderful, more enjoyable, more delightful, with more reality than anything you ever dreamed or imagined happening. He's going to bring you all the way until you're a Shulamite, You are as beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, terrifying army to the enemy. You will be his co-worker, serving him by love and expressing love in your service. Then you'll reach chapter 8 and say, Lord, if I see you outside, it would kiss you. I want to be raptured. I want you to come back. This is your future. We have to learn of Paul forgetting the things which are behind, including precious spiritual experiences. When we see a practical need with husband or for a saint or when there are calls to come to serve or help, how do we know when to pack it up, and when not to. Okay. We have to learn when to say yes and when to say no. That some, they feel guilty in a religious way. If someone is asking you, will you help with this? Will you serve in this? She's fully aware She's already at capacity. But she's just afraid to say, no, I can't do it. And the enemy harasses her. And so then you get overextended and the Lord shows you that only you and I know your present capacity. Someone comes, they're asking you to do this. Only God is omniscient. They don't know what your situation is. And so you need to be honest and say, I'm not able to do this. Like, I receive again and again invitations to travel to this country or that country. And I have one I need to respond to. 
from a country we have never visited in, in Asia. And I realized before the Lord, I cannot make that trip. I cannot fly from L.A. to that country just for this. I can only visit if I'm already planning to be for a period of time in that area. So I'm not going to be afraid of saying I'm not able to do this. Okay? And then maybe they'll get a brother 15, 20 years younger who has the energy to do this. To me, it would be unwise physically, spiritually, psychologically, relationally to the most important person to just try to be a good guy and not say no. So this we have to learn under the Lord's shepherding. And again, just ask him to guide you in, in this matter. Okay, are we broken once and for all? Or do we need to be broken constantly? Okay. Okay, okay, it's not constant. <clears throat> the actual situation experientially is this. Okay. With let's take Jacob again. There's the decisive breaking. And that caused the Lord to say, Your name now is Israel. But that wasn't the reality. So he needed some supplementary breaking experiences. They're not constant. They're spaced out, and overall they're rare. It's not a daily thing. There'll be a lie from the enemy. And so, certain things happened to his daughter. Then two of his sons got revenge and killed the perpetrators and then put Jacob in a difficult situation. Then eventually the Lord brings him to Bethel and he offers the sacrifice to El Bethel, God of the house of God. Now he knows God in a corporate way, not just personally. Then what happened after that? Rachel is in childbirth. And he is right there. And the helper says to Rachel, you will have this child also. But she knew she was dying. So the baby came. She named him Benoni, son of sorrow. Jacob is right there seeing the love of his life pass away. Then he said, no, I name him Benjamin, son of my right hand. Then he saw her breathe her last. Surely, for any human, this is a breaking. It's deep, but it's not the decisive one. Then he Buried her, set up a pillar, 
and journeyed on. But he wasn't mature yet. And so we know what happened with Joseph. Another breaking. They're always measured up by God. He's an expert at this. There's always the supply. And there's nothing we need to fear. It's because we have the aspiration to go on that the enemy may attack us to instill fear. Don't take his thoughts. Put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Hide under the shield of faith. And I'll tell the enemy, don't you dare attack any of my sisters. We will smash you to nothing. We're not going to let this happen to ourselves or anyone else. We hear so much about the need of consecration. However, we also hear that we need times when people have had deep consecrations to the Lord. Something tragic happened in their life. So we fear to consecrate. And then we also fear that things may happen to anyway, whether you consecrate or not. So then what is the point of consecration? And the difference does it make whether we consecrate or not? I appreciate this question. And I mentioned this to young people more than once. Okay, Human life is a life of suffering. And because we're living in the old creation, we're not exempt from the kinds of suffering that can happen to anyone alive on the earth. Now, consecration. Consecration is not a vow. It's not a promise. It is a decision. And the decision is Lord, I present myself to you as a living sacrifice. I give you the permission to work on me, to work in me, to work through me, and to direct my steps. The Lord will honor this decision of our will. Then he will give us, as he did with Jacob, as he did with Paul, with Brother Nee, with Brother Lee, and many of us, he will give us all kinds of experiences that we might not have had if we hadn't consecrated. But those experiences are under God's sovereign hand. They are very productive spiritually. They enable Christ to grow in us. And so, I've talked to the trainees or the young people. You may have the thought, if I consecrate myself to the Lord, uh uh-oh, I will have difficult experiences. And I will say, that is right. But if you do not consecrate yourself to the Lord, because human life is a life of suffering, you will have difficult experiences. So don't think you can avoid suffering by avoiding consecration. 
Now, the core of this question. Right now, as we are here, people all over are suffering great loss. The loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, the loss of their health, the loss of their finances. And it's just a suffering with no benefit at all for God or that person. It's a meaningless suffering. Their life is meaningless, purposeless, aimless. And if they are thoughtful, I passed through this phase when I was young. Life is absurd. It's meaningless. And this is still my view. I either have a life full of purpose and meaning to carry out God's perfect will for his heart's desire, or the whole thing is a joke. It's absurd. But when you consecrate those things that happen, that also are happening to unconsecrated people, are under God's direction. And eventually, I say this inwardly with a smile, you will offer him retroactive amens and belated hallelujahs. Many of us have done this. You reflect upon this, you see what the Lord gained. You say, Lord, now I thank you for this. I say amen for this. I praise you for this. Then you might add a P.S. Don't let this happen again. (laughs) And then the Lord, in a friendly way, he may say, no, that won't happen again. Other things may happen. When they do, you will be ready and I will be there. And eventually, when you finish your course, in victory, or are raptured as a first fruit, which is our living hope, you will look back on your whole life in the Feast of Tabernacles and praise me with your whole being that you led me this way. Now, the last question. I hate my disposition, and I know I can't change it. I feel so stuck with it. However, I know the Lord created me with it. What can I do so that I won't live in such a miserable way, stuck with my ugly disposition? I get the impression she really doesn't like her disposition. Okay, in the last two or three minutes, uh, I'm somewhat familiar with this. So I'll tell you a little story. I think about 1975, Brother Lee gave a series of messages on dealing with the disposition in some service meetings in Anaheim. And even he said, oh, you need to come together in a group and ask others to touch your disposition. Then later he said, don't do this. This is dangerous. But the Lord put in me a desperation concerning my disposition. Just a desperation. I didn't waste a lot of time condemning it, deriding it. I just realized this is the depths of my being. This is the depths of the self. This is going to 
swallow me up. I took in the word. I ate it. I consumed it. And then one day, this was in Irving, Texas, I went to the health club because I believe in having a program of exercise for health. And I was doing lap swimming in a big pool. And I could swim freestyle okay, but I never learned how to turn. So I got to the end of the pool and I stood there catching my breath to go on. And then a living word came to me. Shall the thing formed say to the one who formed it, why have you made me thus? Because I was holding the Lord responsible. I said, this is not fair. I had nothing to do with this disposition. I was born with it. I was created with it. And now you're holding me responsible for it. And I'm trapped in it. And the Lord bore this for a while. And then he said, the potter has authority over the clay. So that released me. And then I can say this, under the Lord's covering and to his glory, he is here. I speak to him face to face. He is here. Lord, you gave me the experiences that I need to save me from my disposition and even to bring the God-created part of my disposition into resurrection for the body of Christ. And my sisters, if the Lord can do this in me, he can do this in anyone. And so just... Ask, just tell the Lord, I give you the room and the ground to give me the experiences that I need. And I assure you, you will be able to bear the same testimony. He will not let this go unfinished. God always finished what he, what he starts. He's thorough. He's relentless. He's determined. Praise the Lord for such a God. Amen. So just pray to him and trust he will get through. He will go to the depths of your being. One day, I was driving home for lunch from serving and something mysterious occurred to me from 1 Peter 3. Christ's spirit was enlivened on the cross. Then when he died, he descended into the abyss and proclaimed his victory to the evil angels that were bound there. And he declared his victory over their leader, Satan. Then I realized the Christ who descended into the abyss and proclaimed his victory, this Christ lives in me. And I realize myself, my soul, I'm not a shallow person. I'm not as deep as the sisters, but I'm not a shallow person. My soul is an abyss, but you will descend to the bottom of my being and declare your victory 
and he did, sisters. This is our God. Praise him. So why don't we end by just praying with someone nearby. Okay? Just, if you don't want to do it, just sit there and enjoy the Lord. Just offer something to the Lord. We did it. It's 12.18. We almost kept the time. I just want to add one thing. From the Lord through me to you. May the Lord bless you in every way, at every time, everywhere, and in every situation for the rest of your life until we all meet the Lord in glory. Amen Amen and amen. So please pray.